everybody. Welcome back to The Smattering, where we ask the important questions about investing. I'm Jason Hall, joined as usual by the voice of the people, Jeff Santoro. Hey, Jeff. Hello, friend. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I like this. I like this topic today. It's kind of a talk about Charlie Munger, his invert, always invert that principle. And we're going to call this show Running Away from Fires. Yeah. So episode 45, which we put out a couple of weeks ago, we called Running Toward Fires. And the idea behind that was, are there things out there that people are sort of keeping away from that we should actually as investors be interested in? And we're sort of inverting that today. We're going to, we're going to talk about running away from fires. Before we do that, I have a I have a request for our wonderful audience. We have a lot of people who listen to us every week and we're super appreciative of that. And we would really appreciate it if those people who are clearly fans because they listen frequently would do two things. Give us a rating or a review on pod, on the podcast app that you listen to. And also tell someone else about the show. Retweet it on Twitter, send it to a friend, whatever it takes help us grow the audience and the ratings and reviews are super important for the podcast algorithms to send them to new people who are just searching for investing topics. So really appreciate that. And uh, let's dive in here, Jason. So this was, this was your idea. You, you and I were chatting and, and you said, I think investors are chasing yield too much. And that was the genesis of this, of this episode. So what were you thinking when you, when you reached out to me with that thought? So let me, let me kind of build the case here. So one, one of the things, and we've talked about it here on, on other episodes with interest rates having skyrocketed and people actually having the ability to get yield on savings is being a thing now that for all, there's a lot of people that really in their adult life, they haven't been able to get much of a yield on, on, on cash. So, so that's a new thing for a lot of people. And we've talked about how it's a positive. At the same time, and I know with my work that I do from The Molly Fool, and just in general on FinTwit, on Twitter, people are a lot more interested in dividend stocks now than they were a year ago, two years ago, when we went through that bull run that, looking back in hindsight, was obviously a, a bubble of some scale with, with valuations getting insane. Everybody was all about growth stocks, and now everybody's all about dividend stocks. And when I'm thinking about yield, Jeff, that's really what I'm, I'm thinking about from the perspective of too many people, too many investors are, I think, too focused on dividend stocks, particularly, maybe not so much on yield, but certainly on dividend stocks. And I think it's largely because they're kind of running away from fires. Yeah, it's... It's the opposite of what we were talking about last time, but it makes sense right now for people to be thinking there's safety in dividend stocks. They're less volatile. I'll get my, I'll get my two, three, four, five, maybe even six, seven, eight percent. And that's great. But I think I hadn't really given it much thought beyond that, but you, you said something to me, which we actually looked into a little bit. You said, go look at some of the blue chip companies dividend payers that people tend to flock to because they're safe, non-volatile options for stock investors and look at their valuations, look at the prices that people are paying now because for the past year and a half, people have been piling into them. Look at the prices people are paying compared to the historical average or what people were paying in 2018 or 2019. And you start to realize you're possibly overpaying for, for some of these blue chip stocks and you might still get that dividend, but if you want any sort of capital appreciation, that's going to be diminished if you're paying a price higher than where it typically is valuation wise. Yeah. We're, we're going to give a few examples here because I think it's important to kind of illustrate this point, but I want to draw kind of a delineation, Jeff, between thinking about, again, savings, cash savings versus investing. I'm going to pull out the toolbox here. And we've, we've all got our financial goals out there that we're trying to reach. And I think it's so important that people think about using the right tool for, the, for whatever the, the job at hand is and unequivocally 
it is a good thing that more people are putting more money into high yield savings. It's unequivocally, it's a good thing. And you've seen it. We've started, we're, as we've gotten into earnings season, we're hearing from more banks that are talking about drawdowns in their deposits that are moving into higher yield things like CDs or they're, they're just losing them because a lot of these regional, smaller regional banks, and of course the, the big banks, the big universal banks pay nothing for yield. It's, it's less than a fraction of a percent still for all of them. And they've it's largely been sticky for the past decade plus that people have kept those banking relationships because there was, there was no really reason to leave. But now people have a reason to leave when you can get three plus percent yield just in a regular savings account. We're not even talking about a CD where you have to tie up that money for six months, a year, multiple years to get the best yield. People are, are moving their money. And I think that is incredible. Even though, and this is another thing, Jeff, I want to mention too, is that we've, I've seen a little bit of kind of talk out there in the Twitter sphere, particularly from, there's a lot of really good like people that are advisors or they work for for, for money managers that are pretty active on Twitter. And they talk about the realities that you think about even getting like that 3% yield, like the real yield, when you factor in inflation, it's actually worse than cash was two years ago or three years ago when inflation was de minimis and you weren't getting any, you weren't getting any yield. The actual spending power of that money was, was unaffected. But I think it, that, that argument misses the point that most people don't have enough cash savings anyway. One of our one of our listeners that I, I message with back and forth every once in a while talked about how he kind of went through after last week's episode where we were talking about incentives versus goals, kind of went through a bit of a watershed moment about just having more cash makes more sense because it kind of shields you from some of those bad incentive decisions when it comes to investing. And I think again, full-throatedly more people putting more money into cash savings is a good thing. More people buying Walmart stock is not a good thing. Walmart's a good company. It's a wonderful, wonderful company. And it, it's going to outlive you and I and outlive our... It's, it's going to be around for maybe centuries. I mean, it realistically could be. But it's the kind of company that... Again, thinking about the toolbox, Jeff, thinking about stocks, if you're picking individual stocks, you need to be doing it for a specific reason tied to that individual stock being able to do better than some other way that you can deploy that same amount of capital. We talk about stocks as a long-term wealth creating tool. Paying, I don't know, 15 times operating cash flow for Walmart when it's average over the past decade is 11 times operating cash flow and doing that in the environment where interest rates have moved up so much higher, where that, that risk-free rate of return in things like treasuries is so much better. It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense because there are perfectly reasonable, safe alternatives that will either give you a better return or give you a little bit more stability in the value of, your, of, your, of, of whatever you're buying. Yeah, especially if if your thesis for owning Walmart, just to continue that example, is the dividend yield and not necessarily capital appreciation, you can make a strong argument your money's better in your high yield savings account. If your if your thesis for owning Walmart is capital appreciation in addition to the dividend, then maybe you you can make an argument that it's still worth investing in. But to your point, Right now, we went through Walmart, Procter & Gamble, Costco, Home Depot, Lowe's, and all of them are trading for between a little bit and a significantly significant amount more than they historically are on a operating, on a price to operating cash flow yep. metric. So yeah, it really, it's interesting when you actually start to look at it. And it makes me think, and, and I don't know if you want to go here now or talk about it later, but I'm starting to think like maybe it makes sense to think more about those beaten down, high flying, previously super overvalued like tech stocks that are out of favor right now. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's the the place to go. Yeah, I, I like that idea directionally. 
I think it's a really good idea. But you and I, we've actually been engaged in a kind of a group chat with Jim Gillies, who we've had on the show, is a noted value investor, really focuses on cash. He describes himself as a cash flow nerd, I think, if you look on his Twitter profile. But in terms of like the accuracy of his stock picks and his, he's got a great record when he's, he's earned it, right? So he talks, he talks his game. But one of the things that he brought up and something that I've kind of struggled with is even thinking about the idea of dollar cost averaging into some of these great businesses because Walmart's a great business. You know what else is a great business? CrowdStrike, Datadog. These are great businesses too. But if you, if you, if you look at them, again, moving away from like price to sales and some of those like metrics that, that have a function of use, usefulness for companies that aren't actually generating positive cash flows or profitability, it can like be kind of helpful to like build some sort of a framework around trying to figure out valuation. But these companies do generate positive cash flow and they, they still trade for, I think you could say crazy valuations, but they're also growing at crazy high rates still. But the argument is, which, which is going to come down first, the valuation or the growth rate? And the reality is that if you're going to pay 50 times cash flows for a company, you're counting on its revenues continuing to grow at a very, very high rate and it converting those revenues into increasing amounts of positive operating cash and free cash to justify that 50 times cash flow today. So when it does trade for 20 times cash flows or 15 times, hopefully that's 10 years from now, it's, it's generating 10 times as much cash flow or five times as much cash flow, whatever the number needs to be to justify the, the, today's price to get you a market beating return. Yeah. So I'm looking at CrowdStrike right now, just as an example, right? Because we were just talking about that. So right now, CrowdStrike trades for 30 times operating cash flow. Its historical average as a publicly traded company is 203 times operating cash flow. And a lot of that is from when it was a newly public company. It, it kind of crashed down from so so and it hasn't been on the it hasn't been a publicly traded company for very long. I think it to 2019, I think it IPO'd. So I think you have to look at that. You, you, it's easy to look at that and say, holy cow, look how much cheaper it is than it was. But then if you but then if you to go back and objectively say, holy cow, it's still crazy expensive. Right. So even if you exclude that like the crazy IPO part of it and just look at the last three years, right? Still trades, it was it, the average is 88. So it's still significantly lower than its average for those fast past three years. So then I think right. the question you have to think about as an investor is, is that is the growth of the company that you're thinking of going to happen justify paying 30 times operating cash flow right now? That's question number one. But then question number two, I think is like, so is that better than paying for Procter & Gamble if it's trading for also 20? Procter & Gamble right now trades for 25 times right. operating cash flow, and its average over the past 10 years is 18. So it's right. it, that's something to think about. Yeah, it, it is. And I, and I think what it gets back down to is, again, the, the, this concept of uh, running away from fires running from fires is the, the, the running towards fires was the, the kind of mini banking crisis that we went through and where so many bank stocks fell 20% plus. And as we've gotten through earnings season and we've learned, we've heard from them, their balance sheets are fine. They didn't lose a bunch of deposits, right? They're, they're, they're seeing that same drift that we talked about earlier with people moving more towards high yield stuff, but they're not, facing an existential crisis by any means. And that was a fire to run towards because the stocks are bouncing back and investors are making a nice little return pretty quickly and owning some good businesses doing it, right? And the flip side of that is worries about the economy, fears of recession, continued pressure on inflation and like finding these big stalwarts and safe companies at this period because of the perception of safety and kind of walking into an investment that I guess the worst case scenario, and again, 
because most of them they're they're not they're not trading for like wickedly high valuations. They're just they're expensive, and, and you know if you hold them for five years, and things just go bad, you might lose a little bit of money, right? You're probably going to make some money, and you're going to get some yield. And again, thinking about the data dogs and the crowd strikes, there is still a little more potential for maybe a binary outcome. Maybe not for CrowdStrike at this point. I, th- I think it's just gotten to a certain scale where it's just such a cash cow. Its business is so important. It's such a growing market that, again, it trades for like that 30 times cash flows. Even, even if it's somehow we see it normalize all the way down to 15 times cash flows, you know, three years from now, at the rate that it's growing its, its cash flows, the stock probably still goes up from here because it's growing its cash flows at such an, an enormous rate. But I guess what it comes down to is, again, what, what are your goals? What are you trying to solve for? Are you, are you trying to generate, are you trying to own the investments that are going to give you the highest rate of potential growth with like that volatility risk that things could, the wheels could come off and it could get really bad? That's where the crowd strikes and the data dogs fall, I think. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, I don't pretend to have any answers for this. I've been thinking a lot about it for my own investing, partially from that conversation we had with Jim, where the point he was trying to make was because I, he was making a point about value investing and I pushed back a little bit and said, but if you're, what's wrong with dollar cost averaging into a company that you initially bought at too high of a price, right? So Let's say you bought Datadog in mid to late 2020 and you paid, you know, what I'm looking at the chart now, you paid 300 times operating cash flow for it. What's wrong with buying it at 190 times or buying it at 60 times or buying it today at 48 times if you believe in the business and you think it's good? And, you know, now I guess the answer is like, well, you could still be buying it five years from now at 10. 15, 20. So there's that side of it too. But well, it boils down I, to the growth rate, like I said. That's, yeah. That's and, well, and he pushed back and said, well, you better be, he basically said, you better be sure that that's the right, com- like that's the company. Yeah. Because like, yeah. and then the other thing I've heard a lot as a newer investor is there are some companies that have never been cheap and have been fantastic investments for stockholders. Like I, I get it. Not every company is Amazon, but that's the one you always hear, right? And we looked at Amazon too, and it always traded for a hefty price to operating cash. Here's here's some numbers for Amazon just to put it in context. So from its IPO through the end of 2011, it traded on average, the average price to operating cash flow was 118 times. You know, those first few years were a lot higher than that, right? Part of because it was negative, but it was burning burning operating cash flow for a number of years. And then you look at from the beginning of 2012 through present, the average is 29 times. So the key, and I think this is really important, and this is why Amazon, I think, is the one that kind of proves to a certain extent Jim's point, is that when everybody says, well, Amazon did it, okay, who else? Find 20 more, find 20 right. more, find five more. That's the hard part. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's not like, I'm not saying Jim's wrong. I'm just, it, I guess my point is like, it is possible if not very difficult to, and, and, and that's also an extreme example, right? That's an example of a company trading at triple digit yeah. price to operating cash flow, And where you can probably find better examples where the average is 25. And now it's just, so that's a little bit of an extreme example, both in how positively it turned out, but also how absurd the, the metric, what they were talking about was for so long. So and, I guess what the, I'm, and that the reality is that the, the, the thing and the things that led to Amazon being this dominant, very profitable business are, are things that honestly, they started off kind of tangential to its core business and then became the profit drivers, right? Like advertising's right. becoming a big yeah. profit driver, AWS, all that stuff. Those weren't the thesis. They weren't even close to the thesis. Netflix, on the other hand, it was like, okay, we're doing, we're mailing DVDs to people for a, a, a fixed monthly fee. 
And okay, so now we're going to do streaming. And that's that's been their business model the entire time. And yeah. now it's okay, we're going to do advertising now too. So we've seen those changes, but it's been the business has been the business. And Amazon is is exceptional in so many ways. And I think that's your point. I Yeah. And I think if I'm going to take away the overall point I think Jim was trying to make, it's basically don't overpay to begin with. I think that's the that's his main point. Price matters. But I guess the reason I sort of wanted to push back a little bit and have the conversation is, but there's a lot of us who own stocks of companies that we really believe in and we paid too much for them. So what should we do? And that's where the conversation came from. So circling that back around to the the idea for for this show and running away from from fires is I I think I think largely you're right. I think and here's here's another part of it too. I mentioned the Dalbar study before the quantitative analysis of investor behavior that looks at how basically individual investors. So this is removing like the large pools of wealth. So like funds and pension funds and these large money managers, removing them and just looking at individual investors. Like we always underperform every index of whatever it is, every asset class. We're always worse um, because we're always kind of whatever we're doing, we're, we're kind of doing it the wrong way. In this case, I think chasing safety in the wrong way is like the way that, the way that I think about it. It just seems like we always, we always do that. Yeah. So here's a question I have just as we're talking through this and I'm thinking about it. If you're someone who has a regular cadence of buying stocks, like I do, like, and, the, and any listener knows I, I buy every week. One of the things I've thought about, because I sort of alternate between buying stocks that in my portfolio or adding to my little bucket that I consider to be my high growth, I'm, I'm owning these companies for a long period of time. I don't own them because of safety or dividends or anything like that. That's where you would put the crowd strikes and the data dogs and things like that. And then sometimes I buy what I did think of as my just beat my interest rate bucket of stocks to pay my mortgage off early. And, my, and, my, and, and you and I had a similar strategy where it's like, okay, my interest rate is whatever it is, 2.75. So as long as I can get more than that out of this bucket of stocks, I'm doing, I'm ahead of the game compared to if I were paying my mortgage off quicker. Right. But now I'm wondering, right. should I take that dollar amount and just put it in a high yield savings account? Because that's getting a higher rate of return than my interest rate is. Like, should I even be if I really want to continue the strategy of taking my extra mortgage money and buying stocks with it, I'm starting to think maybe I should take that extra money I could pay my mortgage off with and just put it in my savings account. Well, yeah, just don't buy Target. I mean, I think that's part of <laughs> that's part of the lesson. I, I like this way of thinking because let's be honest, the story has completely changed with thinking about pools of risk and thinking about what your what your goals are, right? And and how can you achieve those goals in the lowest risk manner? And I, and I think that's what we're all trying to to solve for. And for me, like the my, my goal with the with the, the the pay off your mortgage portfolio, and this was a little kind of a nuance in the different approach that you and I were taking is you're focused more on total returns. I'm focused more on yield, right? Making sure to invest in and it's arbitrary. I get that. That's fine. But you know, these frameworks they're they're always arbitrary in some way, but but again, that's part of how you you kind of manage yourself and as as an investor. And for me, it helped kind of help me limit and focus myself on ba buying stocks that were a little higher on the yield end, but also so they needed to be able to yield two point eight percent plus, and also have a good track record of growing that payout because. To me, the idea is less focus on capital gains. It's just owning good businesses, paying a good price, and then watch them grow how much they're going to pay me every year is going to accelerate like my financial independence. And also because I'm thinking about it in relation to a mortgage, a 30-year mortgage, you're never getting me out of my house. I'm sorry. <laughs> at the rate that I, that I got it at. So... I'm thinking about the same thing. Even though these stocks are liquid investments, I'm treating them as being illiquid. And I know I can do better than, over time, I can do better than a high-yield savings. I know that the yield on cost, it might take me time to build it up, but I know my yield on cost, five years, 
from the time that I first begin, began doing this should, should exceed 4% because the, the price that I paid and the ability in aggregate for these companies to grow their dividend is going to be better. And I, I don't know that I'm going to be able to count on that in cash savings. And I don't need the cash as cash. So from that perspective, for, for me, no. But for somebody that maybe it's how, it's how you, you're going to sleep better at night, yeah, maybe, maybe it does make sense. But again, I think, again, tying that long-term goal of financial independence to it, thinking about it as being illiquid, I think I've aligned my incentives and my goals pretty well. And it, it's, that's, that's why I'm going to continue to, to, to I'm just, again, not, I'm not going to be focused on these, these blue chip stalwarts that are overvalued right now because I can do better. So one thing I want to ask you what you think about this, because as we're having this conversation and as we were prepping for it, what do you think about this statement that I just thought of? Your job as an investor is to always try to buy the stocks of the companies you most believe in that are currently trading for their most attractive price. And if, and if that's like a workable framework for someone, like let's just presume you, you think I'm a genius for having said that, then shouldn't you right now be looking more at high growth tech stocks that have been beaten down rather than these blue chip stalwarts that we've been talking about? You're, you're a genius, Jeff. You're a genius. But no, I like that statement. I think it's like a good mission statement as an investor. And of course, then you get into some of the nuances where if the stock that's always cheapest is one that you already have substantial exposure to, then you have to start moving down the list. So, right. Yeah. I mean, obviously with for all that kind of stuff, but I think, I think by and large, I think that's, that's a good approach to take, but I would take it one step farther. And, and I would say it's the one that, that your analysis tells you gives you the highest probability of the best returns. Hmm. Again, inverting it a little bit here yeah. uh, because the, the one that has the lowest valuation isn't necessarily always going to be the best one to buy. You said it yourself. There's a lot of, of those great winners have never per, been particularly cheap. Starbucks was that way for a long time. This was a stock that's basically always looked overvalued. They had their little hiccups, right, during the financial crisis and when the first time Schultz left and then came, ended up having to come back because they, they, they grew too quickly. But by and large, except for a couple of years here and there, it's been always, was always an expensive stock. Costco, for most of the past decade, has been a relatively expensive stock. But those well, have been that, wonderful, wonderful investments that were far better than buying something trading for a single digit price to earnings. Well, so yeah. So let me amend what I meant because I didn't say it as clearly as like I was really thinking about it in my head. So first of all, when I said like, a comp I, I caveated it at the beginning by saying a company that like you know is a good company, right? So you're not just yeah, picking no, up it's a your, cigar. It's your pre-vetted list of right. either stocks but you also, already own or that are on your watch list. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. But I think the way I was thinking evaluation when I said like the cheapest is really more about like relative, maybe, maybe I was thinking of it more like relative to his historical, I guess this is the difference, right? So this is where, because I'm not super good with doing like reverse discounted cash flow calculations and figuring out the projected growth moving forward and what a fair price is now, which is like the, the by the book way of doing valuation. I do a lot of looking backwards and, and comparing to historical averages as a way of just sort of getting a ballpark of how expensive something is. So like just because I have it on my screen here from our previous conversation, like looking at Datadog over the past 10 years, I see the average price to price to operating cash at 196 times. And today it's at 49. And I know 49 is really expensive, but man, it's a lot lower than 196. And I know that that's not the whole story and I can't make all my decisions based on that. Mm -hmm. But I have to admit that that's compelling to me that yes, it's still expensive, but who knows, maybe 20 years from now, we look back and go, well, Datadog's one of those huge winners that was never really cheap or not. And that's why investing's that's, hard. <laughs> that's exactly why investing's hard. And this is when it gets back to frameworks, right? The idea, there's not, get ready people. I want you to write this down. This may be the most profound thing you will ever hear me say. 
Well, that's a low bar. I mean, let's be Touché. honest. It's true. Jeff's right. There is no investing instruction manual. Oh, there's tons of them out there. Everybody's how there's all kinds of how to guides, but none of them really tell you exactly how to invest because yeah, essentially every single person is, is different, right? And whether it's your mental makeup, your financial situation, your biases, the way you think about stocks, the capital you have to deploy, all of your different financial goals, your incentives, all of those things makes it a little bit different for everybody. And that's why I think a framework is so much more valuable than something like just like a how-to instruction manual sort of thing, because it helps you think about how to think about it and then make a decision based on that and not telling you what to do. Right. And I think I like using Datadog as an example because I've been building my Datadog position over the past six to eight months. It's it's a stock I probably have bought the most frequently as I've been like, what should I add to this week? What should I add to this week? And I'm doing that completely knowing that it's still, I'm not, I haven't been dollar cost averaging into green. It is still- right. It right. is still a losing position for me because it continues to get cheaper and cheaper. And this conversation that we're having and the one we, I, we had recently with Jim has made me think like, okay, maybe maybe I'll pump the brakes on this one a little bit and think more about it. Because to your point, there's no instruction manual. I'm just trying to use my frameworks and think about things and get better and better. But I think being willing to challenge the way you've thought about stuff is a super important skill to get better. I hope I hope I'm better a year from now. Yeah, that's a really important, important idea right there is having your ideas challenged. You mentioned, we've talked about this before. There's a lot of people listening to this podcast, Jeff, because they don't really necessarily, they don't have a friend or somebody else that, in their life that's, that's weird like we are, that loves talking about stocks and investing. And that's normal. I think that's more common than, than the relationship you and I have. And it's, and then of course we have all of our peers professionally that, that we, that we do work with. So we have that network of people that we can reach out to. And you and I, we do, we text every single day and almost every day there's something about a stock or something investing related that's part of our conversation. And one of the things that helps us both is we do have different approaches and we think about it differently because if you find somebody that is, invests exactly the same as you and that thinks about it the same way and is like-minded, you're going to build the best echo chamber in the world yeah. and you're not going to get better. And that's the key. And that's the key. And it would also, one of the things that these conversations make me always think, because we always come away from them without any answers. Like, I feel like our podcast could be a how to invest, except it would be like, how to invest? <laughs> it would be like a question. But one of the things, these last week or so, as we've been talking through this, I've been thinking like, maybe the fact that I am mostly invested in index funds is, is a good thing. Like you know, one of the things Jim said to us was the, the thing he recommends the only, well, not the only thing, but one of the only things he recommends dollar cost averaging into is an index fund. And I was like, oh, so this, it's a good thing that I just happened to not get into individual stock investing until I was 40 years old. So I have 20 something years of dollar cost averaging into an index fund to sort of fall back on. And it also, it's, it's another kind of in my, in my thinking through like, my toolbox, but also whenever someone does ask me about investing and I'm, I never, ever give advice because I don't feel like I know anything, but one, the only, I guess the only thing I would say to people is like, at least just start with an index fund or an ETF. Like if you put a little bit into whatever, S, you know, if you want to do the whole index, an index fund that tracks the entire market or the S and P 500 so that you start investing and then sort of branch out into individual stocks as you as you want to. And then you don't have to make all the right decisions right now because the individual stocks end up being 4% of your total portfolio or something like that. So that's another thing that the, these conversations have made me think. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And this is, again, this is somebody who I'm 100% invested in in stocks. All of all of my family's invested wealth is 100%. We, we own no mutual funds, no index funds at all. But I agree wholeheartedly, most people should have some percentage of their, their wealth, especially starting out, like you said, because it lowers the stakes. Yeah. And you, right. you're one of, you're the 
poster child for doing it that way because it's what you do full time. Yeah. Like yep. I, I, I don't have all day, every day to, to think about and devote to thinking about stocks. So I, I think the more you're into the industry or the more you have time to be into it probably makes more sense to have more individual stocks because you're willing to put the time in and learn. And, and I hope that a lot of our listeners are nerdy like that too, but I know some of them are just, it's a casual interest and don't really have the time. And that's me. Mo that's how I feel most, most days. Just close the up. Oh. Okay. So do we want to wrap this part up then? Yeah. 30, I think 30, we're, we can spend a good 15, 20 on the three questions in the thing. So. All right, Jeff. So just to kind of tie a bow on this. So much has changed for investors in the past year. And I get the idea of you, you just lost a boatload of money. Your portfolio is way down and you want to stop the bleeding. You want to get somewhere safe. I completely get that. But I, I just, I want to caution people out there. And again, we, we give, we give our answers and this is, it's up to everybody else to find their own answer. But Go back to your toolbox. Think about your goals. And before you buy one of these stalwarts, blue chip, wonderful companies, it's the absolute worst time to be buying their stocks, I think, for the next five years. Think about what you're trying to accomplish and step back. And maybe it's buying more of, of, of like Jeff was talking about. Maybe, maybe it is buying more of the stock that you've lost your shirt on because you know it's still a wonderful business. And even if the valuation does feel a little bit stretched, the its ability to grow into that valuation you feel really strong in. So, so don't don't overcompensate. I think that's the thing that we do. And I just want to really want to caution people from swinging the pendulum way, way the other direction. Give yourself yeah, some and, grace. Be patient. And what I'd say in closing is, I've noticed in my portfolio the blue chippiest things I own are doing well now because of the purchases I made of them in 2020 and 2021, when they were out of favor and cheaper. And yeah. the ones I've in that category I've added to recent, more recently have started to slide down in my portfolio if I have them sorted by return. So I just, just another sort of data point that I've noticed in my own portfolio. All right, Jeff, let's take a little break. We'll be back and we'll answer some questions. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We've got a mini edition of our mailbag coming up. We got a few questions that folks have just been sending in to us over the past few weeks. And then we had another question that somebody responded when we put out the request on Twitter. So Jeff, what's our first question? Okay. So we got a question from Kevin. And it's about taxes on international holdings. So Kevin says, I'm interested in more global diversification, but I've seen conflicting guidance on how my investments will be taxed. Total Energies, ticker symbol TTE, caught it's my total, eye. Total Energies. Oh, Total Energies, excuse me. It's a French um, company. I'm not even going to try to do a French accent here. It caught my eye in part due to our podcast. Thank you. But French, Fran, France taxes dividends and capital gains differently than the U.S. I read about the existence of treaties that allow me, a U.S. citizen, to be taxed in, at my home country rates while I own shares of this French company. Is that how this works? First of all, we're, we are not professionally qualified tax advisors. I think that goes without saying, but we're saying it anyway, so nobody tries to sue us. I'm um, not professionally qualified to do anything, but certainly not advise on taxes. So yes. That's, okay. That's mostly true, Jeff. I won't defend you. But so, so that's like, I think you've kind of got the gist, the gist of it, Kevin, is that we have tax treaties. The U.S. has tax treaties. Again, we have listeners all over the world, but the U.S. has tax treaties with the EU and other countries that gen generally says that if you've paid more in tax already, on on to for, for on foreign taxes on dividends, you're you're not going to have to pay U.S. taxes. To, you're not going to pay more than whatever the U.S. tax rate is. Generally, that's that's the way it works. My suggestion is honestly just to do a Google search 
and it's foreign, foreign taxes on dividends. And there's some really good articles. You'll find them on Investopedia. I'm pretty sure The Motley Fool probably has a good one too, where you can get a basic answer for that pretty, pretty quickly. Now, if there's, it's probably not very likely that you're going to have exposure to a company that there's not already either a tax treaty with or that the company is domiciled there because the corporate tax rate is, or the, like the tax rates are very low where that, that company is domiciled. It's probably not going to result in a massive tax bill, but you can find some pretty good stuff on the internet to answer that more specific. The only thing I would add is when I was a very new investor and I opened my account with Fidelity, I had a lot of questions. So I found that just doing a little online chat with them or calling, yeah. there's people who will answer those questions. Right. One thing I learned is that people who work at the brokerages are there to answer these types of questions. Most of my questions were about rolling accounts over from other companies and things like that. But I would imagine if you reached out to your whoever your brokerage is, they could answer the question as well. Yeah. And um, even if they like throw up the we're not an advisor, tax advisor thing, they'll have a link to a place on their site that's going to give a pretty good answer for that sort of thing. So good point. Good point. All right. So we got another question via email from Alex. It's a little bit of a long one, so I'll try to read it quickly. Hey guys, just wondering about your thoughts on trimming a position during a hype-induced spike. For the sake of the question, I would define hype as a stock price moving way beyond a realistic valuation. I have used this strategy twice now where I sell part of the position, set that money aside, wait for the price to drop back down, and then use the proceeds to buy a high number of shares, higher number of shares. It's worked pretty effectively for the first time, the second time, not so much. I, I sold shares of NVIDIA at 194, feeling that was a reasonable valuation would be around 100. I thought maybe after peaking over 200, it would drop back down to at least 150. In the short term, this has been incredibly dumb because NVIDIA is currently over 270. So he, he, he closes by saying, I'm still confident that I don't want to be overexposed to nosebleed valuations, so I don't regret my decision, but I'm starting to question if I'll ever get the opportunity to execute step two of my brilliant plan. Not in a hurry, but definitely feeling a bit of a, like a bit of a goober. Any thoughts? Cheers, Alex. So I will say, you're not a goober. This is actually a really good question. And I think something people think about a lot. I'll say one thing that I thought about, Jason, and then I'll turn it over to you. I don't think there's anything wrong with trimming a position where you think the valuation has gotten wh whatever you consider to be too high. Just know that if you're wrong, you're selling part of your position and you're not going to be able to realize any gains after that. But my question back to you, Alex, would be, why not use that money that you get from trimming to buy just a different stock that you have high conviction in at a better price? I don't know that you have to always wait for NVIDIA. I would think of it personally, if it were me, more about taking that cash from the trim and just thinking of this is money I now have to buy any company I have high conviction in that I think is at a better price. And maybe down the road, you have cash from some other sale and NVIDIA is there where you want it to be and you buy more then. What do you think about it, Jason? Price anchoring, recency bias. Are you trading the stock or are you owning the stock? Are you owning the business? The market can stay irrational longer than you can stay liquid. I could keep going on. Directionally, I think this is probably a mistake for most investors to try this because you're trying to time the market, you're trying to get the perfect price, and you're focused on the price now. And again, there, there are times where I wholeheartedly agree with Jeff. I think it makes sense. If you have a stock that's been a very big winner for you, or you made a large initial investment, and it's now an outsized portion of your net worth, and you're talking about material harm if things go poorly from there. Selling all or a portion makes sense because you're protecting yourself to the downside. This feels like trying to get it perfect, right? Trying to, trying to buy at the perfect price and sell at the perfect price. And unless you're a full-time trader, it's, this can be really difficult to do. And you think about it, particularly with a stock like NVIDIA, where there can be hype that surrounds it. It can be driven by so many factors, but it's also a really, really, really good business and a company that can get an order of magnitude larger over the next 15 years. 
And you have to start thinking about, okay, that's who's 70, that number that you're talking about. How long were you planning to own NVIDIA, right? Again, assuming everything goes swimmingly and the business plays out and the thesis is good and they keep building out all of these other little businesses with AI and autonomous vehicles, et cetera, et cetera, all the stuff they're doing, it, it works. Let's say everything works. How long do you want to own the business and what, what do you think it could be worth? And this is why, where I think one of the risks of selling an NVIDIA on valuation in the near term can blow up in your face is because you may never get back to the price that you want. And you're always going to anchor on the price that you sold it for. And you're never going to want, and I'm saying you, not to you, Alex, but you broadly, is we, it's really hard to pay a higher price than the price that we sold it for. It's so hard to get past that. I'm not saying go buy back your NVIDIA shares and make your position whole. I'm just saying that you have to, you, you have to decide is the, the long-term risk of walking away at this price that you might feel is expensive, is that long-term risk of, of never being able to get a, what you think is a fair price going to harm your long-term re returns and your long-term financial goals more than just writing it out. I think that's the thing that for, again, for, Jeff, it gets back to the reason why most people should own index funds. You don't have enough time to study a hundred companies and make perfect decisions all the time. Yeah. The, the other thing I'd point out, and I, I was looking at the chart while you were talking. So if you're talking about the price of 194, Alex, and that's the only thing you were looking at, you have to also remember price is not valuation. So I'll give you an example. I'm looking at a chart and I'm just using the number 200 instead of 194 because that's where the line is on the chart. So you could have sold NVIDIA sometime this year, earlier this year for $200, and it would have been around 90 times operating cash flow in terms of price to operating cash flow. Okay. You could have sold it at 194 in, or you could have sold it for around 200 somewhere in 2021. And the price to operating cash flow would have been closer to 70. So right. the price and the valuation aren't always necessarily, the price would have been the same. It would have been cheaper valuation wise. The company's, as the company's financial results change, right. it's going to change the valuation and number of shares can change. Like all those things kind of come into play. So, so yeah, all, I just, all I, what I, my point is the $194 is not always created equal in terms of the actual yeah. value that you're paying. Yeah. I, I think, and again, I want, I want to emphasize this. I think this is a mistake for most investors to try most investors, individual investors to try to buy their way in and out of, of what they think are fair prices because it's just. The system's not, I mean, all the entire game is rigged against you being able to do that successfully. So we got one more question. Yes, we got one more from Osan on Twitter. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. D-A-M-O-S-A-N. And he's, he or she says, it would be interesting to get your perspective on comparing stocks in an industry, a more value option to the high flyer. Do you focus more on growth and market leading attributes? And at what point does valuation come heavily into it? example, Splunk versus Snowflake. So I, I don't know how you're interpreting this question, Jason. I'm reading it as basically, what do you look at first to make the initial decision? And then like, where does valuation play into that? Is that how you're thinking of it? I think maybe, maybe sort of, but I think it's more along the lines of like thinking about companies within the same sector that might compete with one another. Maybe one's a little bit bigger, more established, not growing at, at as high of a rate. One that's been around longer versus a, a newer, more startup-y, younger, higher growth company. Company Got it. And thinking about how to value them compared to one another. And for me, I think it always kind of gets back to starting with cash flows, right? And you, you start with valuing from cash, operating cash flow and free cash flow you get kind of a baseline of, of how the market is valuing them now. Compare that to the market average because it can be different from one industry than the next. These highly efficient, highly cash efficient asset light businesses generally are going to trade, especially the ones that are growing fast, are going to trade for a higher valuation than a utility, right? Because utility is not going to grow very fast and it has very high capital expenditures that it has to make to so all of, so again, you have to, looking within the industry can kind of help normalize some of that. 
Um, but you really have to dig into the makeup of their businesses to find out. To like Splunk, for example, this is a company that's going through a transition to more of like a SaaS model. So it, it can be hard sometimes to compare these stalwarts to these growthy companies. So I think you almost have to be careful about just doing a side-by-side -side valuation because that can be, that's not really a good North Star and you have to think about them individually. And are they, is the company you're most interested in, in buying trading for what you think is a fair valuation for that company? Because then if you're just boiling it down to just valuation and you're, I don't know, I, it, it kind of feels like you're, try, again, trying to pay the perfect price for two companies that aren't really equal comparisons and just trying to buy the one that's cheaper. And like I said earlier in the show, Jeff, I, I don't, I don't know that trying to buy the one that's cheaper is really necessarily going to be the one that's going to give you the best returns because it so might just, not be the one that's growing its cash flows, you know, because you're, you, again, when you're buying a stock, you're basically, you're buying future cash flows per share, right? And you want to, you want to buy as many companies that are growing their cash flow per share at a high rate, right? At the highest rate based on what you paid for it. So it's, it's easy to get caught up in chasing cheap. And, and walking right past value. So one thing that I, if it were me and I was looking at these two companies specifically, and I just pulled up one metric. So this is not meant to be exhaustive, but it's meant to be an example. So price to operating cash flow, Splunk trades for 31 times, Snowflake 79 times. So yeah. on that metric, Snowflake is significantly more expensive. So I just chose revenue growth as a, as another metrics to look at. And I went back three years. Splunk, the cheaper company on the valuation we just talked about is trending upwards and Snowflake is trending downward. It is a short time frame. It's one metric, but those are the types of things I, I have tried to look at. And Jason, you can tell me if I'm like thinking of this wrong. I also would look at the same thing with like, where is profitability heading? up into the right or down into the right? Where is operating in free cash flow heading up into the right or down into the right compared to the valuation? Because that can sometimes give you a little bit more information about, yes, this one might be cheaper versus more expensive, but where are things kind of trending and heading? And then also, where do you think the market opportunity or the growth potential is moving forward from here? Expensive stocks are always expensive for a reason. You just have to figure out if it's a good reason or, or a bad reason. And again, I think the, the, those are the blue chips, right? That's the example of, I think they're expensive for a, for a good reason that's bad. They're expensive because people have flocked to them for safety. Snowflake's expensive because it's growing like wildfire, right? So again, you do whether, but you have to move from there to, okay, does this price make sense for me to achieve my, whatever my goals are? Hey, Jeff. We have once again done it. Every week we do it. We do. That's right. Okay, friends. As always, we love to give our answers to these hard questions about investing and finance and money and the messy, ugly part of it that is humanity. But it's up to you to figure out your answers, you humans out there. You can do it every single week. I believe in you. All right, Jeff, we'll see you next time. See you next time.